It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, June 19th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. The January 6th committee says former President Trump put his vice president in danger despite being told the election outcome would not change. The vice president never budged from the position that I have described as his first instinct, which was that it just made no sense. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. We have another primary day this Tuesday in a state that may have given us a preview of the country's political mood late last year when they flipped from blue to red, at least when it came to statewide offices. Looking ahead to November, uh, there are at least a couple of uh, House races that look like they're going to be very competitive, held by Democrats that Republicans could very well end up taking. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. A clear and present danger. That was a warning this week by retired federal judge Michael Ludig to the House committee investigating the Capitol riot about former President Trump and his allies. The former president and his allies are executing that blueprint uh, for 2024. Ludig testified Thursday, a former Reagan administration official and appeals court judge nominated by former President George H.W. Bush. Ludig was also an informal legal advisor to former Vice President Mike Pence, answering questions about certifying the Electoral College. Ludig said had Pence done anything differently than what he did on January 6th, the nation would have been plunged into a constitutional crisis. Pence's legal counsel, Greg Jacob, says the vice president never believed he had the authority to alter the electoral outcome. The vice president never budged from the position that I have described as his first instinct, which was that it just made no sense. Jacob talked about a pressure campaign privately and publicly designed to get Pence to agree with a legal theory put forward by attorney John Eastman that the vice president could delay or reject the electoral count by sending slates of electors back to the states. Former White House attorney Eric Hirschman in a recorded deposition described his reaction to Eastman. I said, are you out of your effing mind? Earlier in the week, the committee played recorded testimony from Trump campaign manager Bill Stepien, White House attorneys and Justice Department officials who all rejected claims of widespread voter fraud. The case the committee is trying to build is that the former president knew he lost, continued to claim otherwise, and that contributed to the violence at the Capitol and threats against Vice President Mike Pence. Fox News congressional correspondent Chet Pergram has been following the hearings this week and shared his reporting. You know, some of it is just laying out the evidence that they had on what this plot was. I mean, it was kind of damning and audacious what they were looking to do. I mean, I thought one of the most uh, revealing moments uh, of the hearings that we've had, and that includes the hearing that we had last July and then the sets of hearings we've had over the past week and a half here, was just the fact that they knew that this plot um, was was risky. Uh, there was suggestions that it was illegal. And I was struck by Mike Pence's attorney, Greg Jacob, 
who in back and forth with John Eastman, who was the one who kind of, you know, cooked up this this scheme, um, you know, that the vice president had a lot of agility in the joint session. And this is where they were putting the onus on Mike Pence. And he would reject these slates of electors coming in from these other states and send it back to the states and so on. The thing that stood out from from the testimony is that this is where history is important, is that Al Gore, Vice President Al Gore, presided in his capacity of president of the Senate over his own loss to President George W. Bush in January of 2001 after the Florida election dispute in 2000. And he ostensibly would have had this magical power to reject Florida and send it back to the states or whatever. And he did not do this. And this came out in the testimony yesterday that Al Gore did not do this. And so Greg Jacobs said to Eastman, well, should Al Gore have done that? And he said, no, he absolutely should not have. And how about, you know, Vice President Harris come January of 2025? Should she do this? No, but we think we should do it. Well, and the that is that is staggering, Jared. Well, not only that, but but Jacob also says, you know, I don't think we would win at the Supreme Court. I think it would be 9-0 that we would lose at the Supreme Court. And he said that after some back and forth, Eastman sort of suggested, yeah, yeah maybe it would be 7-2. Yeah, yeah. But but here's the other so, thing. So, I mean, too. I guess the, the point that the committee's trying to make here is that even those who, who had sort of developed this legal theory uh, were not confident in its success. That's right. And and they were not confident in the success, but the people who were and the person who continued to promote it was the former president, Rudy Giuliani, mm-hmm. people going out on stage, you know, at the ellipse on, on January 6th before the riot at the Capitol, Mo Brooks, the Republican congressman from Alabama, and stirring up the crowd just not that day, but in the days and weeks leading up to this and, and very not so subtly, you know, rotating to put this focus on Mike Pence. Well, and, and this is where the committee started to say, OK, he doesn't have that power. He he has to flee you know, the House and Senate chambers. He's hiding in an underground location here yeah. in the Capitol complex. They can't even take the motorcade out. Uh, I mean, that that's pretty We're told damning this was stuff. Within 40 feet of of Pence. And and the thing, and we knew some of this before, the amazing thing is the 40 feet business was new. Yeah. Uh, but the but the the idea that they that they didn't want to have this optic of the president leaving the building, you know, politics is always about optics, even in the a circumstance like that, the, the vice president leaving the, yeah. leaving the Capitol. I'm not sure, A, that could have been a secure route under those circumstances, considering yeah. how many people were in the streets around Washington, D.C. And number all two, the way to the ellipse, which goes beyond the White House. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And number two. The fact that Mike Pence and some around him were not confident that they would be secure, you know, as Mike Pence, you know, said to Greg Jacob at one point, you know, you're not behind the wheel. I trust you. And and the the idea that the vice president of the United States is thinking that there might be a plot out to get him. You know, this is stuff that's out of the movies. You know, we heard, you know, the former Capitol Police or the Capitol Police officer at at one of the hearings, Carolyn Edwards, a couple of weeks ago, you know, to talk about this was like like out of a movie. The whole thing is like it's out of a movie, but it actually happened, Jared. And that's what's so scary about it. And that's what's so damning. And as I say, again, remarkable about this plot to actually, you know, steal the the, the presidency from underneath the feet of the people. And, and, you know, Greg Jacob, you know, I talk about, you know, the very technical thing there. Let's say Mike Pence would have rejected those slates of electors mm-hmm. in the joint session. They said, well, there was no appetite by the states to go back and relitigate this and, and have the state legislatures or the courts or whomever do this. And that's where he said it was going to be decided in the streets. Well, well that's the scariest saw, thing yet. And, and Judge uh, Ludig, 
um, you know, said that had that happened, it would have been not just a constitutional crisis, but in his view, a revolution. Um, I guess sort of raising, to your point, questions about what the next steps would have been. In other words, you know, how is a how is that scenario uh, adjudicated. It's never been done before. There's not it, a precedent it, it, for that. It, there's another step that, that you take if you if you are obviously not settled in who gets to 270 electoral votes in the Electoral College when the House and Senate meet in that joint session to certify the election. What happens is you have a contingent election. Now, that doesn't involve sending these things back to the states. And a few times over American history, this has happened. It's, it's something that hasn't happened in, in modern history. But in 1801, uh, this is how Thomas Jefferson won. Uh, the, the, the Constitution prescribes the House of Representatives with each state voting as a delegation. In mm-hmm. other words, one vote per state. So California would have the same as North Dakota. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you have a bunch of Democrats in California. They dominate the delegation there. We got one Republican in North Dakota. That that that's equal. And you would have a contingent election. So 1801 for Jefferson, 1825 for John Quincy Adams. So this has happened twice. But that's and that's how you you, you saw what happens it. in a tie situation. Well, it's unclear. And, and because you had in, in the, the Jefferson case, I mean, they went to multiple ballots over days. It took yeah. them a while to sort this out, frankly. And then you eventually had some abstentions and things. And, and of you know, that it, predates it, the Electoral Count Act. That's right. Because they yeah. and again, but but again, the Constitution even supersedes the Electoral Count Act. So that's how you would do it. And some of the founders thought that this was actually how we were going to choose our president most of the time, that it would be pitched into the House of Representatives and they would they would sort this out. You know, what's the other interesting thing about this this whole matter, Jared, is the debate over the role of the vice president. It had always mm-hmm. been viewed as ceremonial. Uh, Pence reached out, reached out to uh, former vice president, former Indiana Senator Dan Quayle, who presided over his loss his with George H.W. Bush yes. in January of 1993. So we've had a lot of people, you know, who've, who've been through this dance. But Richard Nixon <laughs> from Indiana. <laughs> yes. Yes. So Richard Nixon was vice president, Eisenhower's vice president in January of 1961. And he is presiding over uh, his loss. Uh, to John F. Kennedy in 1960. And, you know, some political scientists have looked in and said, if you if you took about 22,000 votes or something like this from Ohio and Hawaii, um, the election would have gone to Nixon. But Hawaii by itself, which in those days had three electoral votes and now has four, was not a determinative state in deciding the presidency. So Hawaii comes in, sends its electoral slate to Washington in December of 1960, and it goes barely to Nixon. We're talking like 90 votes here. Signed by the governor, which is how it's supposed to go under the Electoral Count Act. And because it's so close, they do a recount. And a few days later, it turns out that Kennedy won by about 140 votes. Okay. If you understand the Electoral Count Act, and they send that in, the governor signed the the certificate. If you understand the Electoral Count Act, and not many people do, and and I discourage you all from reading it because it is an almost incomprehensible piece of legislation. So it tells you what I do on the weekends. So anyway, if you read it, it's very hard to understand. And what it, but, but Nixon should have, based on my understanding and others I've consulted about this, taken his slate, the slate that came in for him, the first slate for him. But Nixon 
actually announced it the other way for Kennedy, who ultimately was the victor. Now, again, like I said, this wasn't the deciding factor. So, mm-hmm. the, so there has been influence precedent for this. This is, you know, not Terra Nova here, Jared, you know, for vice presidents getting involved, albeit in a minor way that didn't tilt tilt the election. Number two, uh, if you look at the 12th Amendment to the Constitution, which also has jurisdiction over this, it says the certificates shall be opened, the envelope shall be opened, and the, the totals read. It's very, you know, passive. Yeah. And this came up in the hearing the other day where Ludig, some had suggested that the 12th Amendment is written inartfully. And he said, yeah, no, no, he took it's issue written, with that. <laughs> it's written perfectly because that says what you're supposed to do. In other words, it's silence precludes you from doing anything else. You open the envelopes, you read the totals. That's it. And so it's both clear and it's not clear. It also is in the passive voice. So you don't really know, does that mean the vice president has this power or doesn't? Is the silence implying that the vice president has that power? That is, in fact, Terra Nova in that regard. So I want to talk about that in the context of, you know, the question that I get a lot, and I'm sure you get it too, Chad, is, uh, you know, what, why does this matter? What, what happens, right? So that we have these hearings, we get a report from the committee. Is the aim here of the committee uh, to refer criminal charges? Is it to present legislation that may clarify the Electoral Count Act? Is, um, all, you know, all of the above, frankly. Because, uh, you know, Benny Thompson, there was a dispute in the committee back and forth about if they would send any more criminal referrals. Uh, He kind of left that door open at the Mm -hmm. end of the hearing on Thursday when he was asked specifically about former President Trump and, you know, indicated that, you know, at the end of our process, we'll see. Okay, you send a referral down to the Justice Department, which doesn't need a referral from Congress, frankly, they can act on their own. Right. And there's a bit of, uh, of a dispute well, right talking now. Talking about as, that, because that's whether or not they should be prosecuting for yeah. things that the committee right. is reluctant to give. Right. And, and and Benny Thompson said at the end of the day, they will provide everything DOJ needs, but their focus right now is getting their, their work done. He says, we're not going to be uncooperative, although there was a letter from DOJ saying, we want some of your transcripts. And that's to some degree, some of the natural tension between different branches of government. The other part of it is, well, maybe they're actually thinking something and the committee is too close hold. And I think maybe because the committee is too close hold, it's because there's a dispute about what they want to do, frankly. OK. Mm-hmm. And, and and the political impacts of that would be monumental. The other part of this is also just establishing an historic record that has not happened yet. Um I had interviewed Casey Burgett from George Washington University about this. And he said, you know, the, you know, the, the, watching these hearings, he said, we're going to look back in the history books and things that guys like he will teach. Uh, this is going to be on the level of Watergate, Iran-Contra, some of these high-profile hearings that have come down the pike over the years. And he's probably right about that because you had this day where democracy literally almost crumbled in yeah. the United States. And so this is the historic record that they will talk about 50 years from now, 100 years from now. So that's the other part of the conversation. Then the last part, you said, what about legislative recommendations? They could try to update the Electoral Count Act, maybe something that's a little easier to understand, frankly. Uh, it's, you know, dates back to 1887. OK, and, it, and the reason, Jared, that the Electoral Count Act Act was put together in 1887 was that it was the legislative response to the disputed election 
1876. Uh, you know, that, that was a disputed election there, too. Samuel Tilton, you know, actually actually won the popular vote and then lost the Electoral College, you know, by, mm-hmm. by, by one vote. So 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 it took him 11 years for Congress to respond to that. So they're thinking, you know, maybe we need to do something here. Amending the Constitution, updating the 12th Amendment, that would probably be hard because you yeah. need, you know, two thirds of both the House and Senate, three quarters of the states yeah. to amend the Constitution. So maybe an update to the Electoral Count Act would be on the table sometime between now. And if we use the 1876-1887 model between the event and everything else, so maybe in uh, 2032. How about that? Uh, well, in the uh, interim, we will have two more hearings, Chad, next week from this committee. Uh, we, we understand that first one will focus on uh, what the committee says was a pressure campaign uh, against state legislatures and uh, elections officials. So that, that's uh, right. That a couple more hearings will emerge. And yep. three more presidential elections between now and 18 and 2032. <laughs> and you'll uh, you'll cover all of them with us. Chad, appreciate the time. Thank Have you. a great all weekend. Right. Cutlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. It's election time in Virginia again. Yes, Virginians did vote for governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and state lawmaker seats just seven months ago in their off-year elections. And while Tuesday is primary day for U.S. congressional districts, it is not primary day for all of them. Virginia is a little confusing on that front, and we'll get into it. But the attention is mostly on two congressional seats currently held by Democrats that may flip in the fall. Republicans are hopeful, not just because of the economic landscape and the predicted red wave, but because Virginia went red seven months ago, electing GOP representatives for attorney general, lieutenant governor, and electing Glenn Youngkin as governor. Together, together, we will change the trajectory of this commonwealth. The two seats getting much of the attention are District 7, held by Democrat Abigail Spanberger, and District 2, held by Democrat Elaine Luria. Four Republicans are running for Luria's seat, and six want Spanberger's seat. Spanberger's been one of the Democrats who's pushed back against President Biden on border-related policies, and she's been focused on inflation, urging the House to pass the Lower Food and Fuel Cost Act. Hyperpartisanship does nothing to actually respond to inflation, make gas cheaper, or make sure food is in the fridge at an affordable price. The act did pass in the House. While five Democrats voted against it, seven Republicans voted for it. But with redistricting altering congressional seats around the country, where will Virginia voters go next? Well, look, I think in a presidential election setting, Virginia has definitely become a kind of a lean Democratic state. Kyle Kondik is the managing editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball. Um, the Republicans are still capable of winning in good environments as they did in, in 2021. And Looking ahead to November, uh, there are at least a couple of uh, House races that look like they're going to be very competitive, held by Democrats that Republicans could very well end up taking. Uh, Elaine Luria, Democrat, defending a seat in um, in Virginia Beach uh, that historically is pretty swingy um, and got less Democratic in redistricting. And then uh, Virginia 7, held by Abigail Spanberger, which is uh, kind of a redrawn district that is voted for Biden, but not by a whole lot. Um, and if you're looking for, you know, a couple of seats that I think are going to be pretty important to, to the battle for the House, I think I'd look at those. You know, in terms of the Virginia primary, it's kind of interesting in that unlike so many other places, Virginia has this strange system where basically 
individual parties and individual congressional districts determine whether they have a primary or not, or they nominate yeah. through some other method, like a what's called a firehouse primary, which is essentially kind of like a primary at like one location or a few different locations where they have a convention or something like that. Um, and it's just one of many basically strange and, and essentially unique rules, election rules in Virginia. Like, for instance, there's just a one term limit for governor. You can't run for reelection as governor. You can't run for non-consecutive terms. But so it's just kind of a strange it's a strange state in that way. So there there, there aren't going to be primaries across the whole state, but there are um, primaries for the right to face Luria in Virginia, too, and for the right on the Republican side to face Spanberger in Virginia, seven. Yeah, so I, I was that was my next question actually was I think Virginia wins for the most confusing primary setup. Um and to your point, Republicans in the fifth and eighth congressional districts, they held conventions in May to pick their candidates. The tenth district held that ranked choice vote. Um that was also on May twenty first with the conventions. And then districts two and seven, like you just noted, they hold their primary elections Tuesday. The other four districts, were those already set because there were no challengers? Or what happened with those other four? Uh, I'm, not, I'm actually not sure. Uh, uh, really, I've just been looking at two and seven and ten to some degree. Um, but it also may be that there's just no uh, there's there, there are no primaries and the candidates are set. The, the way the way the Virginia map is drawn is that two and seven are really the competitive districts. Now, five, which which cover Charlottesville and a lot of central and southern Virginia um that district is Republican leaning. It could be competitive in a good Democratic year, but this isn't shaping up to be a good Democratic year. So I don't think it. And why? Much. And tell me, Kyle, you said you're looking at the tenth. That's Jennifer Wexton is the incumbent there. She's the Democrat. It, after redistricting, it looks like that seat is still lean Democrat, but it's it, by a single digit, right? It's like by five or eight or. Well, five. so so Biden Biden won it by almost twenty points. And so it's fairly similar to, to how we how we did in the previous iteration of the of the district. And it covers some historically Republican but Democratic leaning turf. Um, and so I think Wexton should probably be OK. But it's, it's you know, if, if we reach kind of like mega wave status and the Republicans are netting, you know, like 40, 45 seats or something, you know, that's the kind of one that maybe is is on the uh, you know, in, in play, if that sort of thing happens. And I think that that seems a little high to me at this point, even though I do think the Republicans are going to do really well in the House. Um, so that's sort of like a fringe target as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, Kyle, that is the tension, right? As we look ahead, as we talk about all these primaries, right, and we get into the minutia and the little details, really, this is all about who are the Republicans who are going to challenge these Democratic incumbents in this supposed sort of red wave expectant year. Um and so you're right, right? We look at districts two and we look at district seven, Luria and Spanberger. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the people who are running against them or who the Republicans who are, who are vying to be, uh, the people who run against them. I was reading, for example, about the six Republicans who want Spanberger's district. Many of them have military or law enforcement backgrounds and many of them have talked about the 2020 election and how they question those results. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, there are some some folks who have, uh, you know, previous electoral experience and, and who have won races in the past. Uh, Bryce Reeves, a member of the state legislature, is one. You've got uh, Yes Vega, who is a uh, uh, local official in, in Prince William County. Uh, and, you know, again, I think whoever ends up emerging is going to be someone who gets support from national Republicans. And, and, and you know, it's a it's a it's a, uh, it's, it's a real prime target. You know, Spanberger's old district, the one she represents now, is more of a Richmond centric district and sort of extends into kind of rural central Virginia. Um, this district is more focused, kind of kind of more oriented in northern Virginia. And it's more Democratic. But um, oh. it's it's it's, uh, you know, uh, 
Um, Biden only very narrowly won Spanberger's current district. This one, Biden won by six, seven points. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit more Democratic than, than the country, but but not that much more Democratic. So hmm. uh, I think Spanberger's in for a challenging race regardless. That's interesting. So if Spanberger, her, her redistricting of her district made it more blue, and yet she's still like sort of on the chopping block. She's, she's still considered... Um, somebody who who is going to have a, a very contentious or difficult race, even with a redistricting that makes her district more friendly, arguably, to her and her positions. Yeah, that's right. And But, you know, she also uh, th- this is a lot of new territory for her as well, because, again, she's, the district is more northern Virginia oriented now and it used to be more kind of Richmond oriented. Um, so she she had to you know move move north, essentially, to, to represent this district. The way the Virginia redistricting happened was it was. Uh, designed to be this nonpartisan process that basically failed. Um, but the state Supreme Court stepped in and essentially had a couple experts draw a map. And I, I think they did a decent job in reflecting the state. But um, both districts two and seven were swing districts on the old map and the swing districts now. We also have runoffs, Kyle, right? Uh, the other states going on the 21st are, are um, Georgia, Arkansas, Alabama. I think the Georgia and Arkansas, the, the big national races seem to have been sort of settled. But I assume you're paying attention to Katie Britt and Mo Brooks in Alabama. Brooks had Trump's endorsement. Uh, Congressman Brooks, I should say. He he had Trump's endorsement, lost it over his comments about the 2020 election. And then just a few days before the primary, uh, the former president backed Katie Britt, who was outgoing, retiring Senator Richard Shelby's chief of staff. Are you watching this race with great interest or do you think this is Brits? I mean, look, I'd be really surprised if Brit ended up losing. I mean, she came pretty close to getting 50 percent in the initial round of voting when there were more candidates. Um, and, uh, you know, to, the, the, the former president has backed her, which I think is you know, certainly helpful in a Republican primary. So, um, uh, you know, again, it would be a pretty considerable surprise. And, and, you know, this is this would be, I think, an instance where, you know, we, we, we look at kind of. Uh, you know, the sort of more Trumpy or more conservative candidates. Britt, I think, is actually more in the mold of her former boss, Richard Shelby, who, yeah. you know, Shelby's plenty conservative, but Shelby is also kind of a uh, is, is kind of a more establishment oriented figure, I think, in the Republican Party. Shelby's been in the Senate for a really, really long time. He actually was first elected as a conservative Democrat back in the 80s. And then he changed oh. parties um Right after uh, the 1994, you know, Republican Revolution, mm-hmm. um, you know, he sensed where things were going, and um, ideologically, he was a better fit in the Republican Party anyway. But, you know, I think what one of the things that might happen in this Senate, these Senate elections is that um, Republican leadership is going to see that some of their old allies who are retiring, like Rob Portman in Ohio, and Roy Blunt in Missouri, they may end up getting replaced by people who are sort of more hostile to Republican leadership. Um, Brit may be sort of the opposite of that. Brit may be someone who is is sort of a more reliable person who could be, um, you know, very helpful to Mitch McConnell as he tries to manage the hmm. uh, Republican uh, Senate conference. Let's talk about the former president, how he's done with endorsements thus far. He sort of loomed over these these primaries. Um, it sounds like he's done mostly well. Um, just looking back at, at last Tuesday, Adam Laxalt won the GOP Senate primary in Nevada. Uh, he was endorsed by Trump. Uh, Trump's pick, Russell Fry, won the primary against the incumbent Tom Rice in South Carolina. That's District 7, I believe. But also in South Carolina, Nancy Mace hung on, uh, defeating uh, the Trump-backed Katie Arrington. And Georgia voters did not go with Trump's picks, at least in the in the state races, right, with Kemp. Um, what do you make of who's won and lost with Trump's backing? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I think Trump's endorsement is certainly worth having. Um, and, you know, what what it's actually worth, you know, in terms of numbers, it's kind of hard to really figure that out. And each state and race are different and they're different, diff- ends up being, even though our politics are very nationalized, these, the, uh, the focuses of these races can, you know, can be, can be a lot different, but, uh, you know, Trump, Trump has a lot of power still, but he can't just pick and choose whoever he wants to be able to win. I think he suffered enough setbacks that, um, we, we can see that his, his word is not the be all and end all in Republican primaries, even though he's still important, even though he's still important. And he's also still to me, clearly the leader of the party. Let's talk um, briefly about this. The, the Washington Post ran a piece that says more than 100 primary winners thus far question the 2020 election results. And if those are the primary winners, I would imagine that means many voters feel that way, too, to some degree, right? Or those people wouldn't have won their primaries. Um, what does that mean for the future of, I guess, how elections uh, run or how people feel about elections? And I ask because, you know, heading into Tuesday with Virginia's primary, um, there are some articles noting that many of the Republicans running in, for example, in Spanberger's district, they also question the 2020 results. Uh, you know, in, so, in some ways, I think this is, you know, offering red meat to the base, you know, it's sort of uh, uh, waving the bloody shirt of the 2020 election, even though um, the former president and his supporters have produced really no evidence that, that there was any any problems with the election. Um, and so I think it's, you know, and we've got the January 6th commission meeting or, or, or hearings happening now. And so I think it's a shame how persistent and widespread um, this nonsense about the 2020 election has been. But, the, you know, it is it is pervasive um, and it's certainly not a stance that hurts Republicans in primaries and it very may well help. And frankly, anger about the 2020 election, even though it's uh Again, I don't think it's justified. Um, you know, it could be a motivating force for voters, and we've seen Republican turnout has really been uh, excellent um, in the, in this primary season, and also, of course, going back to Virginia and New Jersey, um, in those races back in uh, in in, uh, in 2021. So you have this enthusiastic Republican electorate, perhaps in some ways animated by this this stuff about 2020, and frankly, it might be electorally helpful. So it sounds like you're thinking it's more symbolic rather than we'll have. Well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, here's here's the thing. I mean, if you do have a situation where you've got more and more people open to basically not wanting to respect the, the results or, you know, seeking to overturn the results, if they have the power to do so in a 2024 setting, you know, I think that's concerning. And, you know, it's also possible that the U.S. Supreme Court at some point could essentially um, reduce kind of state judicial oversight over how elections are conducted. Um, in their states and give legislatures more power. And so, you know, could you have a situation maybe where a state legislature basically ignores the the, the will of the voters and sends their own electors that that, that are different to, uh, to, to do the electoral college vote? I mean, it's I think we should worry about these things. Um, finally, Kyle, last Tuesday, Texas had a special election to fill a district. Um, I believe Congressman Philemon Vega resigned from that district. And it on Tuesday flipped from blue to red in South Texas. Uh, Myra Flores won. Uh, she's a Mexican-born Republican who's married to a, a border agent. The Democratic Party said she should not get too comfortable because due to redistricting, um, which will kick in for the November election, the seat will go blue again. Will it? And how much does her win matter as we look at how Latinos are voting? So there are a few caveats here. First of all, uh, Republicans and Flores spent a lot more money in this race than, than Democrats and the main Democratic candidate did. And so whatever, you know, they, they probably had an advantage in terms of the, 
you know, or they did have an advantage in terms of advertising. And also turnout was extremely low. I mean, it's kind of a low turnout area anyway, but um, right. we're only talking about 30,000 votes cast roughly. And just to put it in, in context, in the 2018 midterm in this district, there were 143,000 votes cast. Um, so it was less than a quarter of, of what, you know, w- what you have in, in, in the past midterm. All that aside, though, there have been some positive trends for Republicans in um, certain Hispanic heavy areas, and certainly South Texas qualified is traditionally Democratic. And this was a good result for Republicans. Um, I do think the Democrats are favored to win this district back um, in a different form in November. But um, it's more complicated now because, you know, you've got you now do have technically a Republican incumbent in the seat. And then one of the other incumbents from the area, Vicente Gonzalez, is moving over from his district the 15th, which got changed a lot in redistricting to this one. And so it's a district that, that Biden won by about 15 points. You'd probably expect Democrats to be able to win it, even in a bad environment. Wow. But uh, you know, we yeah. we we rate the race just leans Democratic. We we uh, downgraded the Democrats in this district on on Tuesday night after the uh, uh, after Flores won. So uh, this is one to watch, and it's a you know it's a, it's a region in general where we've been looking for signs that the move toward Trump in 2020 is a signal of an enduring Republican shift. And this is yet another data point that shows that the changes are in fact enduring. And Kyle, one more finally. Are you looking ahead beyond the 21st? I mean, it looks like uh, on the 28th, New York, Illinois, Colorado, some blue state action there. Uh, what's on your mind uh, beyond Tuesday? Yeah, one thing about New York is that they're actually going to have two different primaries, which is actually pretty common in New York. It's, that's another state with uh, kind of bizarre electoral history. But um, uh, the federal, the, the congressional primary is not going to be until August 23rd, I believe. So um, we're going to have to wait and see on a lot of the, the hot congressional races in that state. Um, uh-huh. but yeah, there's there's there are a number of primaries on June 28th and then uh, hardly anything in July. The, the election season kind of takes a break. I think Maryland is the only primary in July. And the only reason that's in July is because it got moved by a court order. Uh, and then we'll pick up again with a, another heavy day on August 2nd. So, uh, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to have a little breather from the primaries that coming up here. Kyle Kondik, managing editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball. Thank you so much. Thank you. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, Senate leaders are still hopeful for a vote before the July 4th recess on a gun safety framework. We will see if there is a bipartisan breakthrough. The House, meantime, has two more scheduled hearings about the Capitol riot and efforts made to get states to decertify results. And the Supreme Court is expected to release more opinions with major cases over guns, abortion, and religious exercise still undecided. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, happy Father's Day, and thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.